Hi, I'm Leila Moundford, Creative Director, Portland Communications. Today, I'm joined by Danny Rogers, the Editor-in-Chief of PR Week. Danny is also a columnist, speaker, and the author of Campaigns That Shook the World, which looked at some of the most influential creative campaigns of the last 30 years. In this episode, we'll discuss corporate character and cause-related campaigning in a social media-driven landscape, often hazardous to brands. This is To The Point. Danny, thank you so much for joining us today. It's really a pleasure to be speaking to you. I guess a great starting point might be to look back at some of the amazing work that you covered in your book. It's been about six years now since your book came out with some campaigns from decades ago. Not to put you on the spot or anything, but how would you say your predictions fared at the end of your book? Well, it is quite a long time since I I wrote my book. So uh, obviously, in the last five or six years, we've had some fairly tumultuous political and corporate developments. And of course, we've had the biggest pandemic in many a generation uh, hisses last year. So um, I do think there's some fairly big changes to some of those predictions I made. I think uh, one of the big outtakes from my book, Campaigns That Shook the World, was that corporate purpose was becoming so important even five or six years ago. And when you talk about campaigning, every campaign in the last five or six years from a corporate point of view has had this strong sort of purpose or or ethical element. And I do believe that COVID-19 has accelerated that trend enormously and changed it as well. Completely. I mean, when you look at your book, you covered Chipotle's Food with Integrity campaign. It was still very new at the time. It was fresh and exciting. Everyone was raving about it, won loads of awards at Cannes, um, always had kicked off like a girl, which we also know really sweeped up um, in the awards circuit. And Dove's campaign for real beauty was <laughs> in full swing at the time. But I guess my question is, have cause-related campaigns actually become the norm to the point of saturation? Or do you think there's been a shift from this kind of marketing purpose positioning to more of a kind of ESG trend? Yeah, I think that's the big change. I think when we used to talk about purpose, we were really talking about cause-related marketing campaigns. So it was about corporates jumping on a particular cause and using it to a marketing advantage. I think when we talk about ESG, environmental social governance, you know, we're talking about the very character of an organization that's under scrutiny. And when companies now talk about purpose, they need to make absolutely sure their character is pretty sound because you're going to get a lot more scrutiny now than you did previously. And do you think there are any brands that are doing that particularly well? Yes, I do. For a long time, I think Unilever has been a leader on purpose and ethics. And uh, Dove, you mentioned Dove Campaign for Real Beauty was a real trailblazer in the whole area of of corporate purpose. Uh, Since then, you know, we've got other Unilever brands like Ben & Jerry's, which has always been an ethical brand, but it's really got involved in, in social issues more than ever before. And the other brand that's been a trailblazer is uh, Nike, with all of its all of its campaigning uh, over many years, uh, and Patagonia as well. 
again, a, a long trailblazer, but a, a company that's always had character and ethics right at the core of its mission. But you mentioned Nike, but I guess even Nike hasn't necessarily always gotten it right. I think we were talking a couple of weeks back when actually they stopped sponsoring a, a runner when she became pregnant and it caused a huge um, outcry um, from the public and actually, you know, pushed them to review their maternity policies. Um, you know, what, what's your viewpoints on, on when brands such as Nike um, have kind of really made a name for themselves over years in this space and then they so kind of blatantly uh, fumble and, and get it wrong in certain other issues? Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? I think this is the important thing about purpose in ESG. It's an ongoing struggle and it should be because companies need to always look at what they're saying what they're doing that their very character and nike has always been a trailblazer in this area but often it's you know it sailed fairly close to the wind um on the colin kaepernick story a few years ago um it divided america on that particular story about uh, whether or not colin kaepernick should take a knee or not, if you remember. Tightly. Uh, and you mentioned, you know, it's treatment of, of pregnant athletes. And even last year, during the peak of Black Lives Matter, Nike was always seen as a crusader on diversity and um, appealing to uh, African-Americans. But it ran into real problems when uh, a newspaper discovered there wasn't a single non-white face on the, on the main Nike board. So... You know, it's it's campaigning on diversity, but it's not diverse itself to that extent. So, but that's the great thing about this sort of work is that companies have continuously looked really hard at themselves to see if they're living up to their claims. And do you think that if we look back at the campaigns that we mentioned before for Chipotle, Dove, etc., do we think social media has made it more difficult to own a, a cause um, by kind of purely marketing it rather than living and breathing it? In short, the answer is is yes. But I also wonder about whether companies should try and own a cause. I think if companies are going to talk about responsibility and ethics, it has to be something authentic to them. So, you know, I think Nike has always campaigned on African-American athletes and so on because it's been part of its whole development and it knows it's got a good track record on that and it knows that it's um you know it's an authentic mission and i think the risk comes in when you do latch on to a particular cause and try and own it as a marketing advantage if it's not authentic to your character as a business then i would leave it alone i guess you do have some brands who may be start off um, as small brands and they build and maybe they start with a singular product and then as they grow, they're, they're looking for what their purpose could be. Um, how do you think you navigate those waters where you're still trying to kind of figure out where your place is in the world, um, particularly post-COVID where, you know, we really expect a lot from the brands that, that we love to give back to the community, give back to um, you know, their key audiences. I guess if you're saying, you know, you shouldn't do it just for the sake of it, how, how do you start doing it if you hadn't done it before? Yeah, I think, it's a, I think it's a very good question. But I think if companies really think hard about this area of their operation, then they do 
naturally interact with with customers. So if you're Unilever and you're marketing um, tea, for example, if you're selling tea, for a long time you've known that you're dealing with fair trade issues in, in where you're sourcing your your tea from. So you know the causes that matter to your supply chain or your customers. And I think it's only then that you feel you can talk with any authenticity about those issues. So I think the risk comes where it's not an area that you've really got any experience of, but you think there may be some advantage in crusading on. That's where it's risky. Most organizations have naturally strong community involvement or social involvement. They just have to look at their staff. They need to look at their other stakeholders like, um, like customers and suppliers. So I get when we're kind of talking about, you know, they're an intrinsic company model or supply chain and kind of being very clear on that where they stand and then um, promoting, you know, the world that they want to see and how they believe things should be done in, in the right way. But when it comes to kind of ongoing debates on social media, I guess, slightly going back to this point on Black Lives Matter and Nike um, and, you know, especially since COVID, everyone's kind of, you know, talking online from from our living rooms. When do you think brands should then chime in or, or do you think they should not chime in at all unless it's 100% something that fits perfectly with, as you say, if they're a tea provider, they shouldn't be talking on issues of gender or, or race. Um, I guess, you know, we now have channels like Clubhouse. Um, what does this mean for brands on these topics? Should they remain silent or should they get involved? I guess, what's the reputational risk of, of remaining silent as well in, in, in these days? It's, it's a very good point. And I think possibly there's a difference between your ESG strategy and how you respond to a particular crisis or, or issue. And I think as much as anything, it's about, it's about listening and it's about an emotional intelligence. So Black Lives Matter, in a sense, was a huge peak last, last summer with, with the, um, the tragic death of George Floyd and so on. And, but if you think about it, diversity and Black Lives Matter had in fact been going for many, many years. So it's not like companies weren't, or if they, if they weren't thinking about it, they certainly should have been thinking about these issues. Uh, whether or not they then felt the need to make a statement as part of um, last summer and, you know, a lot of companies put black flags and so on on their Twitter feeds. And I mean, this, this was the problem. Everybody felt the need to immediately chime in, as you put it. But the ones that had got not a very good track record on those issues, they, they got a backlash by chiming in. So it's pretty important that you look at your character all the time. And it's also important that when you feel you need to chime in, that you do it very carefully because people can see through double standards pretty quickly. And to your point, what social media has done and new channels like Clubhouse and so on, it's just, it's only increased the scrutiny that corporations are under. I mean, they're already under increasing scrutiny, but it's never been as, you know, the, the need to be transparent, consistent and authentic has never been so high. I agree with that. And I, I think it really brings back this point as well as 
if you do decide to speak out, you've also got to be prepared that you might have a very divided um, reaction. And some brands do that deliberately, as, as you've mentioned with Colin Kaepernick, they deliberately chose to support him. And that resulted in, you know, a lot of people saying they were going to burn their trainers and they no longer bought Nike, but actually we saw an uplift in sales. Um, and then I guess some brands do it blindly and, and then are very kind of surprised when they do receive this reaction. But I guess this is the world we're living in right now with social media, you know, there, there's a, a bigger and bigger divide um, in left and, and right. Do you kind of see this polarization trend spilling across into um, other spheres? Is it just social media where we see the kind of cancel culture that happens? I think polarization is a is a huge challenge problem for corporates, for politicians, for media, for all of us. And I think while a lot of these trends in in purpose and trust have generally been a good thing, but they a lot of the trends that I, I've identified are good in that they probably make the world a better place. They make companies more ethical. They make companies more transparent. But I think the the trend towards polarization in politics and media is not necessarily such a good thing uh, because it does, by definition, divide the world. So companies or media feel like they need to take one side or the other. But really, that shouldn't be the case. There should be, I like to think in a democracy, a sensible consensus to, you know, what is the right thing to do and what is the the wrong thing to do. But the trouble with polarization, as you say, is that it forces companies to to take sides. And I'd, To pick a side, totally. Yeah, and we're seeing that with this whole Facebook question as well, aren't we? And and whether... You Algorithms know, almost yeah. further push you down the line that you... Yeah, I, and how much of it is choice, really, depending on what content you're kind of initially consuming and what paths you're pushed down. Well, um, this is the, fa- the fascinating thing. We, we talked before about uh, the Obama campaign, which is one of the campaigns in my book. And one of the things that Obama did brilliantly in 2008 uh, with his first presidential campaign was he used social media to talk almost one-to-one with with supporters. uh, And he managed to bypass the media. But by doing that, he sort of opened up a Pandora's box uh, that meant that if you could bypass the media and just target your messages one-to-one to to different interest groups, micro-targeting, which again was something, as you know, the Clintons used in in their um, original campaigns. It creates problems because there's no longer a conversation that's being moderated by central media. You know, you're you're telling different people different things and and this creates this uh, very divided effect. Well, yeah, I mean, you're just appealing to the base, right? And you're not Mm -hmm. kind of expanding the reach of, you know, your potential candidates. And I think that's why, well, I mean, personally, I, you know, I think the the feelings of unity, building back together, campaigning what we're for, presidency for everyone, the kind of Biden-Harris messaging was um, refreshing because it was really talking about bringing us together and not pushing us further away. And I remember at my time at Amnesty, you know, a big challenge for us was 
not just speaking to the same people who agreed with you all of the time, but really trying to draw in other people. Maybe you wouldn't draw people in who were so far away from you um, that it would be kind of a, a ridiculous notion. But if you couldn't appeal to the people at least um, on the fence, then we weren't really doing our job. But you mentioned uh, the Obama campaign <laughs> in, in the kind of last couple of years alone. Um, since your book happened, you know, Trump had won the election. Um, as we've just said, Biden's pushed him out and Boris has been through a year of scrutiny. Um, I remember you talking about uh, Thatcher winning based on, on kind of communicating a feeling and, and talking, I guess, you know, to, to what really matters to people, what plays on their heartstrings. Do you think this is what Trump uh, did and what the Brexit campaign did? Or do you think it was more a case of um, Trump being able to talk directly to these people through Twitter? I think all those things are true. I think that certainly both Brexit and the the first successful Trump presidential campaign were classic examples of the polarisation in that they very much appealed to a particular half of a country or a, or a society and doubled down on that. And it, it was very antagonistic to the other side. So, yeah, I think these were classic polarisation campaigns. When it comes to communicating a feeling... Yes, I think that's true. I think any successful campaign, in fact, I think right at the heart of campaigning or public relations is this idea of communications, telling a story, um, having a consistent, powerful narrative. I just think that's a truism of, of great campaigning. And I certainly think that in the case of Brexit, um, take back control was a much better narrative than the Remainers came up with, and I think um, Make America Great Again from Trump in that election was a much more powerful message than Hillary Clinton came up with. I think these were key factors in the success of these campaigns. So, But I, I do believe that any great campaign has that strong narrative. That's not anything necessarily anything to do with um, polarisation. But do you think we're a little wiser to these narratives now, particularly in the last year? Do you think people are looking at them with a higher level of scrutiny, considering that Biden has, you know, presented a positive hope for the future of unity rather than necessarily communicating a feeling of, I guess, a fear or... Um, yeah, I, I, think, I think I know what you mean. I, I think, but that's more a case of whether it's, positive or negative, there's still, you know, that the need to sum up your arguments in a single powerful emotional message is always, is always effective. Yes, these, the messaging comes under greater scrutiny uh, than ever before, but they're still pretty effective. I mean, get Brexit done was very effective, I believe, for Boris Johnson in the, uh, in the last UK election. And I think these messages about just getting to the heart of public sentiment, really. A lot, a lot of people on both sides just were fed up with the whole Brexit debate and his promise, whether or not you believe it or not, his promise to just get Brexit done probably did work. So um, I'm not sure that's, a, that's necessarily a negative thing. I just think that that's good communications. 
I guess my point is that in the last year, you know, Boris did make bold claims again um, and he said promised things and he, he let people down. Do you think um, this this bold approach, um, you know, is is being scrutinised more. People kind of buy into this, the slogans less and and actually are critiquing things more, um, taking things at kind of face value on what's actually delivered versus, um, you know, what they say they're going to do. I don't, I don't know. I'd, I'd I mean, like I'm to just wondering so, if, if, there's like any po- <laughs> if there's any positive legacy from, from COVID and, and how people are consuming social media and the news. Yeah, I, th- I think, I, I, I do think, I hope, I hope I think that society becomes a better place and people do judge real character as opposed to spin or um, hyperbole. But I still think a, a single message that's powerfully communicated um, is, is, is going to be very effective. And um, of course it should be scrutinised, but it's just the power of really good communication, isn't it, to to tap into people's sort of gut feel as opposed to the, the head, I suppose. Um, I'd like to think that people see through simple narratives and claims, but I suspect a lot of people don't, uh, and that simple, powerful messaging, sometimes people want to believe what they're hearing as opposed to really truly analysing it. Totally. Well, I guess... We've spoken a little bit about, you know, the role of social media, polarisation. If we actually look at the communications industry and how it's changed over the past year, there's been a, a huge 360 where I guess a lot of us, you know, were, were going into the office pretty much every day. Um, the notion of all being able to work from home, I know this isn't revelationary, but it's it's one that kind of surprised all of us how we've managed to crack on and do things. But do you see any kind of longer lasting trends in agencies um, that might stick around? So, for example, agencies getting bigger or agencies getting smaller, more niche shops opening? Yeah, this, this, is, this is the core of my day job, obviously, as uh, industry chief of PR Week. And um, at the moment, all we're writing about, well, not all we're writing about, but a lot of what we're writing about is the return to the office and what working life is going to look like post post-COVID, in fact, if we ever are post-COVID. Post um, yeah. uh, clearly, blended working is going to be the future of agencies. And um, there are some tasks that are carried out in, in communications agencies that probably need to be done from the office. And um, I think large agencies will still have the ability to, you know, you're, you're a creative director and I think, don't want to speak for you, but I'd imagine that, <laughs> Creatives like getting together and collaborating and they need production studios where people are actually there and working together. Um, Take there's other elements of the communications business, perhaps, which can be done from home or, or more remotely. So the office is being completely rethought at the moment and it's just an ongoing conversation. In terms of startups of agencies, I mean, we at PR Week have seen twice as many uh, agencies start up over the past year, which we would normally have seen. It's incredible. There's a tremendous, a, a tremendous number of uh, communications businesses starting up, and uh, I mean, you've probably got your views as, as to why that is. What one, 
one view might be that there's a lot of good people who have possibly left bigger agencies and want more freedom and uh, can do their own thing or, or maybe the flexible working has just made it easier to set up a, a business. Yeah, I mean, I think you were mentioning this the other week. You said we'd reached kind of peak London. I guess a big trend is, you know, people moving out of the city, having a bit more space. Um, so I guess that could add to it. But I guess from my point of view, when you you are a client who is a big global client with a global footprint where you need multiple specialisms under one roof, I think there'll probably always still be a place for the bigger agencies um, because, you know, we can bring in the right people at the right time. But I, I entirely appreciate that there are certain briefs that, you know, maybe require a smaller niche team. Um, and as you say, lots of agencies have, have been um, opening up on, on this in this regard. Um, are you looking well, forward to getting back later to, I, to the office? I am actually. Well, I've started at Portland um, during lockdown, so I actually haven't met a lot of my colleagues and quite a few of them think I'm very tall, according to <laughs> how I appear on, 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 the, on the screen. But I, as you know, Danny, I'm incredibly short. So they'll be in for a big surprise when they finally meet me in person. But I am looking forward to meeting everyone. But I have to say, I have enjoyed a bit of time with my dog. Um, so I guess, Danny, are we all going to be appearing at awards dues this year? Or I certainly hope <laughs> is so. Is that still a way off? God, I mean, the, the last um, event that PR Week ran was actually more than a year ago, and it was the PowerBook. I believe you were there, actually. Um, PowerBook 2020, that would be, wouldn't it? And um, Yeah, since then, we haven't run any real-life events uh, for PR Week, and um, they're one of the really nice things about uh, the industry and, and, and being editor of PR Week is that you can, you can actually meet up with people and network and have some fun, and we just haven't been able to do that for, for a whole year. I know. Uh, the PR Week Awards are in October. We've booked Grosvenor House. We always used to get at least a thousand people together uh, with a few drinks and uh, lots of awards and and lots of fun. You know, I'm. I hope. And I guess it's going to be a really interesting year to review those entries um, in light of you know the kind of restrictions and the channels people have had to make use of during COVID. And so I think it should be a really fascinating batch of entries, if anything, something that we can reflect back on in 10 years time and go, what a bonkers year was that? Do you remember when we had to do X, Y, Z to get a campaign across the line? Yeah. Um, so, and to your point, that's, yeah. where, that's where we see the creativity that's really happening, isn't it? These, these big award shows like Cannes and like the PR Week Awards. Uh, without those, it's quite difficult to see what really is happening to creativity. Well, I guess if we just kind of you know, bring it back to what we started on cause, cause related campaigning and ESG, social media, I guess, do you anticipate the kind of cause angle being a big um, trend for your entries or at least a big trend for work going forward? Yes, it's going to be, it's going to be huge. Or do you think people are looking forward to, you know, kind of lighter campaigns that maybe are slightly more entertaining? Well, I think that's a really good point you make. You know, I, I think, the thing about purpose and, and ethics is that it's all quite serious. And I, I do think there's there's room for a bit of light relief for for brands and, and companies. And we may well see this year more than last year a bit more fun coming back into yeah. uh, into campaigning because I think people are able now, hopefully, uh, to have a bit more fun and a, a bit more levity. 
So uh, I think that that will be the case. Um, but it's nice to get a balance, isn't it? It's nice to get a balance between the serious ethical stuff and and just the the fun celebratory business. Well, it's quite interesting actually. Um, if you reviewed the Super Bowl ads from this year, there was a, a very clear kind of divider in um, at a brand level, consumer brand level absolute absurdity and bonkers kind of reflections on what a crazy year it was and quite humorous ads. And then at a corporate level, um, a lot of the ads were a lot more about kind of, you know, their impact and how they've helped and how everyone's stuck together. So um, there seems to be a little bit of a trend at a corporate level to kind of own the the kind of yeah, um, the cause-related sort of... stuff and at a consumer level brings some light entertainment it's a bit of escapism isn't it and i think you know if you look at our our viewing habits as a as a nation uh, or indeed as a world possibly during uh covid19 and you you see programs like um schitt's creek and call my agent really breaking through you know really really quite quite clever comedies i, I think people do want a bit of light relief a bit of escapism and um i think it's probably a good thing well, on that note, do you have any other anticipated trends for, I guess, the coming year or couple of years? Well, if you're talking about communications, clearly certain disciplines have done much better over the past year than others. And I think the sort of stuff we've been talking about, ESG and um, and corporate character, have been a massive boom area. Uh, I think healthcare, for obvious reasons, has been huge tech um, and digital entertainment are are also booming and of course on the other end of the scale if you're in the classic consumer brand maybe or the or the retail or um, particularly travel and hospitality it's been really difficult but of course that may well reverse this year because uh, people really want to travel again so although travel PR has been a tough place to be really tough place to be for the past year it might suddenly become the place to be when if people can start traveling again so you know we might well see a comp- an almost 360 sort of turnaround from from last year and do you not think the kind of levels of uncertainty you know might influence how much clients want to spend on campaigns this year or people kind of holding on to budgets or do you think it's a case of people just need to sit on the edge of their seats and be ready to jump when when the big moment comes well this is the 64 million dollar question isn't it whether, <laughs> whether clients are gonna are gonna carry on spending um i suspect they i suspect they will because it all depends really on the economy and it you know a lot of people have had a really tough time during covid some people have become better off um and it's really a question of when the economy settles down whether companies will then put their their money into areas that they believe are, are going to come back or, or are booming but it, there's still a lot of uncertainty around it's such a difficult call right well danny thank you so much for joining us today i guess quick question do you think you'll be writing another book that will cover this crazy period oh, i'd love to write one Layla, if i can if i can <laughs> find the time i mean all the campaigns we've been we've been talking about and i was thinking also as you were talking you know the the vaccination campaign is is so fascinating absolutely fantastic you know yeah. the um astrazeneca at the moment and what it's going through is a is a case study for future generations so um yeah i'd love i'd love to 
That's really, really interesting. And I guess our final question that we ask every person who comes on the podcast is, in such a busy, noisy world, where do you go to try and find clarity? Well, I'm a big, um, I'm a big sports sports guy. I mean, I, uh, I love keeping fit. I usually play tennis, which I find very mindful. Uh, it's something that's a space away from work or even home. Uh, haven't been able to do that for recent months, but I do still go jogging and, and listen to podcasts. Um, but I think in terms of, I, I do actually, it sounds a bit new age traveler, but I do <laughs> actually believe in mindfulness and meditation. I have sort of discovered meditation actually in the last year. Didn't uh, pin you for a, a meditation guy, Danny. <laughs> no, well, um, yeah, even if it's just 10 minutes a, a day of, of meditating just to sort of clear your mind from all the, all the chatter, I find it enormously helpful. And I'm trying to do it every day, but uh, sometimes I get overtaken by other stuff. Well, that, that's really enlightening. I, I feel like I've learned a whole new side of you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Danny. Pleasure. listening to to the point with portland you can find out more about portland and what we do at www.portland-communications.com and you can follow us on twitter linkedin and facebook stay tuned for more episodes being released in the coming weeks